Welcome to Catch Outdoors. I'm your host, Captain Rob Modi's podcast is centered around the great outdoors, especially down this way in the most southern regions of the continental U.S., the Florida Keys. Catch Outdoors hosted by Spotify, now also available on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Google Play, and Stitcher, and probably many others as word spreads. So kick back, get a taste of my Florida. Hello, everyone. Happy 4th of July. You'll actually be listening to this if you tune in when it comes out on Tuesday. It will be the 4th of July, if not happy 4th of July past. I hope everyone had a great weekend. Hope you'll be enjoying this slightly extended holiday. This week's episode of Catch Outdoors is number 93. I titled it The Guide's Life. That'll be explained as we go. Uh, but first, fishing reports and rare bird sightings and congrats on another major celebration here in the Florida Keys. July 3rd, 1823. It's noted as the date that Monroe County was named the 16th county in the Florida Territories. The territory designation is important because Monroe County was formed before Florida even became a state in 1845. I think that's pretty cool. County was also huge compared to today. Um, just draw a line across the state below Lake Okeechobee, you know, from one coast to the other, and then all the way down to the Florida Keys. That whole area south was called Monroe County. And because of this, um, I guess I call it monumental, 200 years, man, that's, that's monumental. There's been all kinds of celebrations over the past week or so down here in the Keys, ending with a huge fireworks display down in Big Pine today, the 3rd. You missed it. <laughs> go, to, go to the Facebook page, Florida Keys and Key West. Um, there are lots of great posts and photos and videos and all kinds of things of what's been going on down here. Probably one of my favorite is the um, the Key Lime Pie Drop uh, down in uh, Key West where they uh, had a contest and dropped Key Lime Pies off of the lighthouse. Um, there's a video, again, going, going back to Florida Keys and Key West, there's a video in there that, I don't know, it just makes me chuckle, especially when the pie hits the bottom. <laughs> it makes a ridiculous sound. I know. And, and and in my mind, too, it's like, what a waste of a perfectly good key lime pie. But anyway, some of them landed and survived. Uh, I believe that was part of the contest. But anyway, it's it's a big going on down here. This has been an absolutely insane weekend. Started way back on Friday. People got off work and were headed in this direction. The roads were completely jammed. On Saturday morning, there were helicopters flying up and down the highway. I, I don't believe I've, I've seen this much action down here ever. And I've been coming down here also for holiday weekends and things like that all the way back to the 90s, actually late 80s. Um, I've never seen anything like it. Um, you know, like one big travel advisory. <laughs> I tell you what, in the future, if you're planning to come to the Keys for any of the holidays, come a day early. Just, just you know, like if it's if it's going to be a, a Saturday, Sunday, Monday kind of thing, come down on Thursday and just avoid the mess. And then maybe plan to go back on Monday when things have quieted down because it's really nuts. Um, but anyway, thanks for everybody coming. Come spend money. Come visit. It's a cool place. Fishing. Let's see. Oh, my goodness. We fished... Uh, I fished on Tuesday, and I had a pretty good day. I mean, I got a few nice snook, um, you know, some mangrove snapper, ladyfish, even a couple of schoolmaster snapper. So that was, that was kind of neat. And I don't normally see those in the backcountry, so I found that kind of cool. Um, 
traveled out a bit further than usual. And when I say out a bit further, I'm not talking about the Atlantic side. I'm talking about going up in Florida Bay. Florida Bay is huge. I don't think most people have a concept of how big it is. It's about 20-something miles between Isla Mirada and Flamingo, you know, if you just travel as the bird flies. So just imagine wherever you are, if you go out into open water somewhere and you travel 20 miles out, that's how, that's, I mean, it's big. Um, I did a trip that was, round trip was 40 miles one time when I fished not too long ago, as a matter of fact. Um, but this time I traveled out a little bit further and, uh, I just wanted to explore some new areas and check out a spot recommended by a friend and it worked. Thank you, Angie. (laughs) That was on the 27th. So the observation for me was that the areas farther southwest show marked differences in water color and quality. So uh, let me talk about that. I've mentioned this before. Key Largo, which is something I'm still learning, the waters around Key Largo, has very little push of water unless you're close to the ocean. Uh, For example, the sound we live on, Largo Sound, has a ton of water coming through it every day. Four times in 24 hours, just as regular as as you can clock it. High tide, low tide, screaming current. Even on the off moon days, the water moves pretty good. Uh, but when you get up into uh, Largo, up into above Key Largo, get up into like Blackwater Sound and, and those areas, the water doesn't move that much. I mean, once it gets through the passes and floods into the lower part of the bay, you don't see a lot of action in the top as far as current's concerned. And that's because there's just one or two inlets. There's not a whole lot bringing the water into the area, and that makes a huge difference in um, catching fish. So um, I moved further. I mean, technically, Florida Bay is an east-west bay. Well, it moves from kind of a northeast angle to a southwest angle as you head down toward toward Key West. And um, so I moved, we'll just call it further west, southwest, if you will. And explored areas where you have more inlets, and that's down by Tavernier. When you start to get to Tavernier Key, you have a lot more cuts and a lot more areas for the water to come in, and that that's made a big difference. Uh, like I said, in the water overall look of the water, the water pushing through the inlets has caused like uh, there are washouts and things that you don't see up in the Key Largo area. Key Largo area is actually a fairly safe boating place on the inside of Florida Bay. Pretty much a wide open bay. I mean, obviously it has its hard spots you got to watch out for and you need to chart and know where they are. But there's a lot of open water that's two and a half to three feet deep all the time. So if you're in a flat skiff or a center console style boat, you can pretty much cruise without a lot of fear. Um, that's not the way it is when you get just a bit west of that. When you just go another six or seven miles west, it becomes a whole different ballgame back in the backcountry. So after an outstanding day, catching a whole bunch of stuff uh, in this new area that I've been exploring, um, I returned there on Sunday with Janelle. And uh, there was nary a fish in sight. (laughs) There were a few snapper, uh, but they weren't the least bit interested in in biting. it seems the tides make a big difference when you travel farther southwest in the Keys, like I was saying. So that's when things changed. Um, Sunday, which of course was the heart of the fourth weekend, I haven't ventured out on the water very much on that particular weekend in a very long time. Uh, honestly, it was avoided by most fishing guides. Uh, we nicknamed almost all the holiday weekends amateur hour. Um, it was really pretty frightening. Uh, in some areas, now some people, I mean, there's, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of good boaters out there. There's a lot of people that understand and, 
and the rules and things, but there are others that don't. They tend to cause the problems, but I think the scariest thing was jet skis. Um, they come in from, in our case, they come from the northeast side. They come in from Miami, Fort Lauderdale, uh, possibly Homestead. They tow them down here, put them in the water, and, and all hell breaks loose. And you really have to be on the lookout for these things. They're, they cruise very, very quickly with mostly inexperienced drivers. So that, that adds to this whole 4th of July fun. And that's why I say most guides called it amateur hour. And most of us did not go out on holiday weekends. Memorial Day, um, Labor Day, and 4th of July, were the, I call those the big three. There were others you kind of watched out for. But anyway, so I decided to stay in the area we were in, even though we weren't catching a whole lot of fish at that time. Um, just to avoid the other boats because, I mean, we went out on Sunday and it was, that's, I, I call that the heart of the 4th of July weekend. And there were boats. I, I joked with Jonelle, we, were, we went to this one area and I said, you know what, I just saw more boats in the last five minutes than I've seen in three or four outings. Um, and that's the truth. Um, so we went to this little island. I, I wanted to show it to Janelle. There, there's an island that is beautiful. It's covered in birds, um, picturesque. Um, it's just, it's a remarkable place. And I liked it. And when I, first time I saw, I thought, this is really cool. I have to show her this when we go out on the boat so she can, so she can appreciate it and see it. And, um, we, we went to the area, we caught a few kudas, caught a small snapper or two. And then Janelle noticed, um, some water commotion about 50 yards away from where we were sitting. She said, I just saw a bunch of stuff kind of move up in there. And okay, well, you know, she's got good eyes. So, Trolling motor turned on, headed in that direction, nice and quiet-like. And uh, the first thing I noticed was current was coming around the edge of that island like I had not seen anywhere else. The water was coming in so good that the uh, seagrass on the bottom is laying down. Those of you that fish know exactly what I'm talking about. If you don't, uh, the current will get strong enough to where your turtle grass, which is a wide blade grass on the bottom, will literally lay down in the current. It gets blown over basically by enough current as it pushes by. I saw that. I got kind of excited. First cast, I think Jonelle pulled in a um, really nice mangrove snapper, went in the box, and then we caught several more, um, all large ones too. And that was what was really great about it. I mean, I, I, I never have a problem with keeping snapper for dinner. I love mangrove snapper. And there seems to be plenty of them. Regulations are five per person per boat with a max of 10. You have like an aggregate that you can do. Um, I'll explain that. I think I have explained that actually back in one of my earlier podcasts. But so it was really neat that we were able to get on these fish and really catch them up real quick and, and throw quite a few back too that were a little short, but um, all because of the current and what was going on on the bottom. You could just, you could really tell a, a nice big uh, bull shark came uh, coasting through just a, a ray. I saw a couple of rays. You start to see life on the bottom that you just didn't see before. So tide was important. I'm still having trouble figuring out the tides in the middle of Florida Bay. Upper Bay makes sense and Lower Bay. Lower Bay is pretty much matched really closely within 30 or 40 minutes of the tides in the Atlantic Ocean, especially if you're near passes. You get in the top, it's opposite. So if you have a high when you're leaving the dock down low, it's going to be, it's going to be low at the top. It's just virtually opposite. That middle ground is really tricky, and it seems like you could just kind of halfway figure it, but... 
So far, I haven't. I have to admit it, it's been it's been kind of weird. But also, I mean, it was really cool and how fast it switched from, eh, this fishing is kind of off today to, whoo, it's on. So we had a great time, and, and we got dinner to boot, so that's pretty cool. Also, in this same area, I mentioned the birds. This is this island is you can hear it when you approach it. It's covered in royal terns. Uh, there's a giant osprey nest on it. There's a lot of other birds around, but I got to see my very first white crowned pigeon. Now you ask yourself, what the heck is a white crowned pigeon? Well, all the years I've spent fishing, I've never spotted one. As a matter of fact, Joe Nels has seen them a couple of times. Uh, on her hikes in Dagny Johnson State Park. And she mentioned it to me that she'd seen them. And I'm like, okay, what do they look like? Show me a picture of that kind of thing. So anyway, we were on this island and up in the top of a of Deadwood, standing on the very top was my very first uh, white crown pigeon. They're really interesting. They, they, instead of like most pigeon that are in my, like, you know, like the stuff that you normally see, they don't stand board upright. This one stands upright. Um, it's kind of like a dove, but different. It's got a longer neck, a little higher head, I guess is the way to put it. This one was kind of a bluish gray in color, and it had the really obvious white crown on top of its head. It was, it was real. I, I was just like, wow, I finally have seen one. Um, the bird is extremely rare, by the way. It's it's one that a lot of folks want to add to their bird watching list, uh, and I, I I got it on my bucket list. That was really neat. Um, Pigeon Key. That's that little island, the service island, the railroad service island, uh, down at about, eh, it's not midway, really, the seven-mile bridge. It's pretty close, so it's a couple miles out. Um, that's what the old bridge connects to with the tours of the seven-mile bridge. That's Pigeon Key that's underneath it. Um, it got its name from that, from the, uh, from the White Crown Pigeon. Um, on old Spanish charts, it's actually shown, I looked it up, it's shown as Cayo Paloma, which is pretty neat. So, I finally saw one, yay. <laughs> Tropical storm watch. All quiet for now. Seems to be a bit of Saharan dust in the way. Thank you, Lord. Uh, so it takes the, what happens is the dust actually gets in the way of development. And uh, the more dust, the merrier. It does make for some very interesting sunrises. Um, sun coming up through that dust will turn things very orangey and very weird in the morning. Uh, and it also makes the sunlight kind of dull during the late morning hours. It's hard to explain. You have to see it. It's, it's kind of like smoke, but not that bad. And it's a little different color. So it, it is kind of weird. But but it's a good thing, and we're happy to get it. Um, so anyway, no storms is good storms. So, <laughs> well, now, wait a minute. I've often preached that tropical storm approaching uh, is a very good fishing time, and it is. I just don't wish that on anybody, and I certainly don't wish hurricanes on anybody, but uh, it does make a pretty big difference when you uh, uh, go for that kind of stuff. So, anyhow, um, I s let's see, where was Oh, Guide Talk. Yes, this week's podcast, duh. Um, episode has the title, A Guide's Life. Um, and... Based that on a few people I've talked to on the phone, text, Alex Dillinsky was here recently visiting me. He's a guy that I formerly hung out with quite a lot in Fort Myers. Um, so, I don't know, I was just sitting there and somebody was asking me about it. Um, I can't remember, it was dinner or someplace, we were talking. and um, So, I thought to myself, you know, guy's life is kind of weird. Um, I've been out of it for a while, but it, but I still remember it vividly. Um. 
let's just say that this is my take on guy's life. Let's just do it that way. And and it perhaps still has it's 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 sent me in a direction that's been very unique on the water and thanks to it. Um, but I believe the job's gotten a lot tougher in some areas of Florida. Um, my vision and other people's vision of guide life is like really good. You know, this is this is a great job to have. It is. It's hard work, but it's a great job to have. But it's gotten a little serious in other areas of Florida, um, outside of the Keys, I think. Um, I'll elaborate. Um, it's been eight years since I had to hang up the towel, um, thanks to the big C. At that time, water quality was just becoming a real issue in Southwest Florida. But awareness has certainly made a difference. But there's still lots to do. A lot to do. <laughs> you don't hear about that quite as much here in the Keys. Um, I guess beautiful water doesn't get much attention, but of course it should. Because we have our issues here too as well. I know ha from having fished here um, that two things are an issue. And, and from fishing here a long time, I mean, my, my really hardcore fishing started in the middle 90s. But before that, I fished often in the mid 80s and late 80s. And it's pretty visu visual. Um, there are changes. And one of them is the reefs. Um, I like to dive and I like to snorkel. And it's pretty obvious that the reefs are not what the reefs used to be, in, especially in certain areas. Um, however, I do believe things are on the mend. I do believe that things are getting better. And I understand that, that the work that's being done by people, researchers, as well as hands-on folks in getting um, coral replanted is really, really helping. Um, but we know it's an issue. Even though we have this beautiful, clear water and these gorgeous vistas, you still understand that that lots and lots of people cause lots and lots of problems. You have to adjust to this. Otherwise, the reefs are going to go away. And we also, the second problem we have is an insufficient amount of fresh water being delivered into the north part of Florida Bay. Um, that would be basically the southern Everglades. It's been cut off. I mean, it was, it was severely cut off uh, years ago when the dike was built around uh, Lake Okeechobee for um, uh, agriculture. And that's just caused all kinds of problems that have slowly compounded themselves. Fortunately, a lot of people are aware and a lot of things are now being done. And not too late, I want to mention. It took 70 years, as I like to say, to screw it up. It'll probably take another 50 or 60 years to unscrew it up. So it's going to be a little while before they get it right. But at least they're working on it. So anyway, that, that's just my view. I, I don't want to, I always say, well, the keys are beautiful. They are. The water here is great. The fishing is great here. It's very different from other places in Florida. Other places are suffering, but the other places are working very, very hard to get it right. So the guide life has changed. Um, although I have not been a guide for eight years, obviously I'm associated with people, but and I talk to them often, actually. And I hear their stories, and I hear what it's all about. I hear about the big storms that have put them out of business for a year, like over on the southwest coast. And, you know, it's going to be a year in September, and those guys are barely working. A lot of them have moved south. They're starting to fish down the Naples area and all the way down the 10,000 Islands or north up by Clearwater. They had to basically vacate the area because there wasn't enough business. But it'll get better. It'll come back. I'm, I'm sure it will. When guides get together either one-on-one -on -one or as a small group, there's always stories. The discussion usually revolves around fish, where they are, how to catch them, <laughs> Yeah, it sounds simple, right? The sharing of information is pretty amazing among guides, especially the guides that have hung with each other for years. 
the newbies have trouble, but we let them in. You have to. Everyone has to have a crack at this, a chance at this. Um, and while information is quietly shared among smaller groups, it's more to help you with a customer. It's not about, to, okay, here's where the fish were yesterday, and here's how we caught them, and here's what we were doing. That is done to help out one of your fellow guides. Heck, we used to use the radio a lot, you know, the, the, the marine radio quite a bit to talk to each other. That became a problem over the years because other people could tune into the radio and they found out what channels we were using. And we would switch the channels based on the time of the month. We would simply, you know, first week we'd be here, second week there, third, and we had a little thing amongst us that eventually was shared through emails. We're going to be on channel four. We're going to be on channel 23, whatever the channel happened to be. So we could talk until they found us. I remember when the scanning radios came out. They, the originally the marine radios were basically pick a channel, then they put the scan system on. You could turn scan on, scan all the channels, and they'd hit us eventually and find us. We got very creative when that happened, though. Yeah, we lie. <laughs> oh, I'm up by the bridge. Um, I remember the old power line. That was the old. That was the oldest trick in the book. The old power lines in Sanibel ran south across. Um, uh, let's see, that was from Lower Sanibel over to like St. James City down in that area. There was a great big power line that went across there. And when I first started guiding, they were ripping that down. They were, they were taking it out basically. And but we would tell people we were at the power lines, and we weren't. Um, so we would, you know, you, you had to mess with them. You could even tell when it worked because you'd see all these boats headed that way, which I always thought was kind of funny. Cell phones made it a lot easier, texting um, a lot easier. And literally talking on the cell phone. It's private. So you could call your buddy and say, look, we're here and we're really, we are on the bite. You need to get over here now. That kind of thing. Um, so that was this guide life thing. It was really pretty simple in the fact that we shared information. And, and we did it to help each other and to make sure that clients were happy on the boat. We rarely ever talk badly about past fisher folks, customers, clients, whatever you want to call them. I call them my buddies, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's true. Um, there, there were a few that you never forget, but in this line of business, it's almost always fun. Uh, most clients, they just, they just want to catch a few fish and enjoy their great views on the water. But a few funny and sometimes annoying things seem to always come up, like with fly fishing. Oh my gosh, I can't begin to tell you how many people... Uh, okay, we, we fished a lot of fly fisher folks from the upper Midwest and out West, all right? And a lot of these folks do not throw a fly very far because they don't have to. I mean, plain and simple, they're fishing in small streams, creeks, narrow waterways where the roll cast rules. What that is is basically you don't, you don't cast the fly behind you at all. You roll it out in front of you. And you'd ask them, where's your fishing experience? What have you done? What water have you been on? Uh, lake? pond, you know, and, and they tell you, and then you say, well, how far can you cast? And they would tell you they really weren't sure, maybe 20 or 30 feet. You say, can you, do you think you can throw a fly 50 feet? And you would get this, well, I guess so. Yeah, I could probably do that, but they can't. <laughs> That's all there is. They just can't. It's not, it's not, it's just not there. It's not, I'm not picking on anybody. They just don't have to do that. So they never really learned. You mentioned hauling on a fly or double haul and they, they'll give you a look like, you know, you're totally in outer space somewhere. 
So that was one of the big problems we had. And the reason that's a big problem in Florida is, listen, if you're a fly fisherman, you're listening to this and you tell us and you're going to go fishing with a guide, it's absolutely imperative in Florida waters, especially here in the Florida Keys, that you can throw a fly at least 40 feet. And I would highly recommend 50 to 60 at a good starting point. The problem is that fish can see you. The water's clear here. If you can't throw a fly long distance, you have to bring the boat in closer. When you bring the boat in closer, you scare the fish away. So, and at that point, if the bottom's hard enough, you drop somebody in the water to wade. And you say, okay, you have to wade in there and get close. So that, that way your profile's lower and hope for the best. So that was a huge problem that we had was just this, this fly casting thing. And I honestly wound up doing fly casting lessons on the boat for about an hour before we really went into an area and actually fished it so that they could at least get on the fish. On some of the lucky days on Southwest Florida, the water would be cloudy. The water would be churned up from either rain, lots of tannin, wind from the winter, winter cold fronts, things like that. And we would go in and, and that enabled me to get them close enough to get on fish. But on a normal day down here in the Keys, that, that just does not happen. So don't fib. Don't, don't tell your guide that you can cast 50 feet when you can't. It's going to cause problems. Uh, my friend said the other day, he said that the one thing that drove him crazy was just hearing stories about big fish. Um, everyone that gets on the boat wants to tell you all about the fish they caught. And that's cool. I don't have a problem with that. Um, they do exaggerate like all fishermen do. And it's, uh, it's the biggest thing I ever caught in my life. And it's really ran me all around, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then they run into Mr. Tarpon or Mrs. Snook. And um, I, I tell you this story for a first timer, man, it's crazy. Watch, I just loved watching the face of a person that has hooked up on a really big fish for the first time. And that's after you've heard all the, we call them the walleye stories. If you hear all the stories about the walleye they've caught and how many, which is great. That, Like I said, that's fine. I get it. It's fishing. But <laughs> ain't nothing going to pull like a, a big snook or even better a tarpon. And so they hook up for the very first time, and it's just—it's just—I mean—it's very entertaining to watch this whole show go on. Um, most of them lose the first fish either way, and we'll say, "What was that?" And you're like, "Well, that was a snook." Oh, and it, it, that look of wonderment on their face, and and then it's like, "Okay, I got to do that again." I said, "Yeah, I know," and we're going to go try to get you another one, and it becomes a terrible addiction. <laughs> I, I used to get lots of calls on, you know, I just want to catch a snook. That's all I want to do. I'm like, okay, that's that's what we'll work on. That's that's what we'll try to get done today. So it was a lot of fun. Now, one of the things that I always found interesting um, is the travel fishing stories from faraway places. That was that was something that happened on the boat, and I think my guide friends will feel the same way, especially from places that you've never been to or you've never gotten to fish or you've only heard about and you wish you'd fish. Um, I've always wanted to do peacock bass in South America. Never done it. But boy, I'd love to. You know, the one thing I miss about being a fishing guide at this point is the stories that customers tell you about their hometowns. You know where they're from and and what their favorite things are to do there and and the restaurants they go to. Where where do they eat? What do they eat? Um, The fishing, of course, is part of it as well. But also the summer fairs and the events that they go to and the stuff that they do that we don't do down here in the summer because it's too daggone hot. I have honestly been to a lot of places in the U.S. and the world through the eyes of my former fishing clients. I can tell you a lot about European countries. I can, you know, 
I've been to all of them because <laughs> I fish people from everywhere. But one of my favorite couples was from Switzerland. And it was just fascinating talking to them about Switzerland. And I feel like I really know it, like I visited there. Um, and that's kind of, the, I, I miss that. I miss that interaction. Guys love to talk to each other about the crazy things that happen on a boat. You know, storms and sudden but bad and unexpected weather. Overboards and how that actually panned out. Uh, yeah, I fell over a couple times. No biggie. I was actually pushed off one day by accident. This young man on the boat got all excited about the fish he caught. He whirled around. And I, was, I was standing kind of off to the side. And he elbowed me. Uh, with enough strength. Yeah, he's like 13. He's not a little kid. Elbowed me, and I lost my footing and fell in the water. Now, the the best part about it was um, he still was reeling the fish in. They, Dad and him got the fish. And he looked around, and I'm standing in the water. And he was utterly puzzled because on not that day, that was like one of those tannin days I talk about where you can't see the bottom. He could not believe that I'd fallen out of a boat, and now I'm standing up. He must have thought I was 10 feet tall. He, the look on his face was priceless. He was very apologetic as I climbed back into him. I said, don't worry about it. It's okay. It's happened to me once before, which it had. And I was pretty happy to, uh, that it happened in about three feet of water. So it made things a whole lot easier on me. Um, you know, th- but the mishaps are just part of it. Uh, we would talk about uh, getting bit, getting stung. That's all part of being a guide. You try to avoid it the best you can. That and getting hooked. Yeah, getting hooked is the most dangerous of all. You really watch out for people when they're casting. I guess you all might have seen the video recently of the angler that got yanked out of the boat by the shark. That'll be a story he's going to tell for a while. (laughs) Don't wash your hands over the side of the boat. Don't rinse your hands off on the side of a boat or a kayak. Very bad idea. I've been stung by catfish, and I've been stung by stingrays. I would put the stingrays well above a catfish. The catfish sting is a powerful and painful and burns but the oh my goodness gracious the sting racing is a whole nother chapter a whole nother ball game it's really awful and mine got infected eventually so i wound up on all kinds of wonderful um uh, drugs and things to combat the infection and oh it was just a ton of fun to, so don't do it um you get a stingray and uh it's not you know if it's possible to cut the line cut it don't mess around with it if you, if you don't know what you're doing with a ray don't mess with them just take i knew what i was doing and i got hammered and catfish are the same way so be careful guide life can be tough public enemy number one is the weather you get to be a damn good meteorologist a couple of years after becoming a fishing guide Better than most of the talking heads on TV, I will say. Okay, I'll give them credit, though. Uh, it's hard to predict the weather, especially here, I guess. There's a lot of weirdness that makes up the lay of the land, and the land temperatures versus water temperature makes forecasting pretty tough, I guess. And it's not always here either. I mean, I lived in Kentucky for a while, and the weather folks up there had all kinds of problems with blown forecasts, especially in the winter. Storms would come right at Louisville, snowstorms, and then veer off to the north. It actually became kind of a joke with all the locals. Like, here comes a big snowstorm. Go ahead and get ready. Get your stuff. Da-da-da-da-da. Don't worry, though. It's probably not going to hit us. And they were right. It would go to Cincinnati. And then every now and then one would get you. I will say this, if the guy doesn't feel quite right about going out, you should probably pay attention. 
maybe go to breakfast and wait to see, you know, what's brewing and what's going to happen. I'll tell you a weather story, probably the one I remember the most. It was February of 2009, 2009, and I was booked for a charter that morning, all, all, an all-dayer. <laughs> um, I looked it up. The weather service had warned about an approaching cold front that could produce very heavy winds. Um, this was due to a lot of warm air over Florida that had been entrenched in February. We were having one of our gorgeous Februarys where everybody wants to be there. And this enormous cold front, uh, an Arctic blast coming down out of Canada toward us. And uh, I went to the marina to meet the guys as I almost, well, I always did that. Actually, I rarely did not show up, even if I thought the weather was going to be off. I would still do it at the marina, not on the phone and not guessing at my house. Um, I never called a trip from home unless it was obvious, like it's raining, lightning and thundering at that moment. Otherwise, I'd go to the marina. I told them this was not going to be a good day to go out. The weather was what I'd call very unsettled. That's, that was my, I mean, even the weatherman used that occasionally. As, as this front was approaching, things were just, just didn't feel right. And they actually argued with me. <laughs> and I finally had to say, no, I'm not going to take you out there. And this, I don't feel good about this. And I'm here, I'm the captain. I'm here to protect you. And not to mention, you know, lose my insurance and lose my job if something bad happens. They finally left unhappy. No yelling or anything like that. They were just very, very disappointed. You know, you plan for this fishing trip for a while, and then you don't get to go. That same day up in Tampa, Florida, Raiders linebacker Marquise Cooper and Lions defensive end Corey Smith died, along with former USF football player William Bleakley. The lone survivor was Nick Schuler. Their boat capsized after the anchor became stuck and the engine was gunned in an effort to dislodge it. The anchor line had been tied off to the stern. Big mistake. Most of us, the boat, know know better than that. You don't do that. And of course, when it was gunned, the stern went down, the water came over, immediately flooded the boat, flipped the boat. But there was much more to the story than that. They were 50 miles offshore when the front I was worried about hit them. They were trying to pull the anchor to get the hell out of Dodge. In other words, they got rushed. They, they were panicking. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission investigation cited carelessness and operator inexperience as contributing factors. The combination of errors came at a time when the storm front was moving in that had made conditions in the water very rough and extremely dangerous. That was their words. That was a bad, sad day. Later that evening... The guy that had more or less stomped off after I'd called off the trip called me. After seeing the news about the football players, he apologized. Now, here's the cool part. He and his buddy became two of my best clients and charted me on a regular basis. So, there you go. The best part of guiding for me was the smile and the looks of wonderment on the faces of my customers. Many of them had never been fishing in Florida waters. They had never seen wild bottlenose dolphin, huge sharks, or alligators. They would sometimes be staring off into space, out into the blue, <laughs> while their bait was being stolen, or the cork would go down and they wouldn't notice it. You could see the wheels turning in their head. How do I make this a permanent thing? How can I move here? How can I do this all the time? That's normal. 
It really is. But there's this inside joke among fishing guides, and I'm sure other Florida residents. You still have to work once you move here. Yep, most locals don't have a tan. But I have to be honest, I wouldn't and couldn't live anywhere else. Thanks so much for the notes, comments, great questions via email and texting. Keep them coming. If you enjoyed listening to my podcast, please tell a friend, leave a review, and don't forget to subscribe to the channel. Catch Outdoors is presented by Little O Me, Captain Rob Modis. Facebook page is Catch Outdoors. Website's CatchOutdoors.com, where you can find all the previous podcasts and a schedule of what's coming up. Until next time, get outdoors and enjoy. Enjoy.